You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 through 29. Let's read them together. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. He endured as seeing him who was unseen. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land, and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. Well, Moses is our next example of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, and probably if you were to go out onto the street this afternoon and interview your average garden variety pagan, just anybody who is part of the walking dead, and ask them what they know about Moses, they would have some idea of who he is and and his connection to Scripture. They would probably associate him with the parting of the Red Sea, the killing of a bunch of people in Egypt for some reason, ten plagues, and the Ten Commandments. And I think that that cultural association of Moses with those items in Scripture and those events in Scripture is probably largely due to the fact that we are still living off the fumes of a culture that was familiar with the 1956 movie by Cecil B. DeMille starring Yul Brenner and Charlton Heston, The Ten Commandments, right? When I was a kid, some 14 or more years ago, <laughs> we would watch that every year. It was on, on Resurrection Sunday. Uh, that evening, and it was back then, if you were to watch TV on Sunday night, that was the only thing that was on in our area, because we had one channel, one channel, and I know that it had to have been on ABC, because anything that was on CBS or NBC, it was always snowing. Every show was snowing inside, snowing outside, and if you turned the antenna just right, you could get it to stop snowing for a brief period of time, until your favorite show came on, and then it would start snowing all over again. If you're over 30 years old or so, then you have some idea of what I'm talking about. And if you're looking at me like, what is he talking about? You have have no idea how. You're probably thinking, if you're younger, you're thinking, you had a horrible childhood, didn't you? (laughs) And the answer to that is, yes, I did. But we had, (laughs) hold on, but we had Ronald Reagan. And I would take one channel and Ronald Reagan in a heartbeat today. I would do away with everything else if I could just have those two things back. So Moses, that's what we were talking, Moses and the Ten Commandments. So I have vivid images in my mind of that movie, and that is a movie that could very easily be remade. Hollywood is trying to remake a bunch of movies. I would suggest that the Ten Commandments could be remade. There are a lot of movies that age well, and then there are movies that do not age well. And if, you, if it's been a while since you saw that, just go back and watch some YouTube clips uh, I was looking at one last night. There's like an eight-minute eight clip on YouTube of all the times that Moses' name is mentioned in the movie. And that's fun to just watch that eight minutes of the references to Moses. And you could ba- basically get the entire story in those eight minutes if you want to do that. Rather than spending three hours and 40 minutes watching the Ten Commandments, you could just watch those eight minutes and basically catch everything that was, was worth watching. I'm not even sure that eight minutes was worth watching. 
The Exodus is, the story, Moses' story is told in the book of Exodus. Moses wrote the book of Exodus, and Moses ended up leading the Exodus, and he is our next example in Hebrews chapter 11. Beginning in verse 23, going through the end of verse 29, as we progress through this chapter, Hebrews 11, we've gone from Abel, which is Genesis chapter 4, all the way through Joseph, which is Genesis chapter 50, and we hit on all of the major events in the book of Genesis, except for the creation account and the Tower of Babel. Those two events, we didn't have anything surrounding those, and we didn't deal with those, but we pretty much gave a survey of the rest of the book of Genesis. And just these last four patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, just those four take us 280 years of history, almost three centuries of history in those lives of those four patriarchs from the time that Abraham was called until the time that Joseph dies at the end of the book of Genesis, about 280 years. Now, between Joseph and Moses, the number of years between those two men is somewhat up for grabs in terms of it's questionable. We're not sure exactly how many years that is largely because we don't know exactly how to date the Exodus or when to date the Exodus. And disregarding all of the schools of thought by liberal theologians and people who are skeptical of Scripture and want to cast doubt on everything that's written in the Pentateuch, if you cast aside all of that and you just consider this conservative Bible scholars, there are a couple of different ways of dating the Exodus. And we're not sure exactly how to date it, whether, whether we date the, subject, the, the captivity of the Jews in Egypt, whether we date that from the time of Abraham and Ishmael and Isaac, or Jacob going down, or if it's after Joseph uh, is no longer known by Pharaoh, if there's 400 years after that. I mean, that can be a period of time that varies um, here or there, it's, it's going to be somewhat subjective. And by very, I mean not millions of years, but we're talking about a couple of centuries at the most. And so we don't know exactly how much time between Joseph and Moses. By some accounts, if you date the Exodus rather uh, early, then you're talking about probably 60 to 80, 100 years between Joseph and Moses. That can be somewhere up to maybe close to 300 or 400 years between Joseph and Moses. So there's a bit of a, a difference, and I just bring that up simply to say that though I'm reading on it and trying to study up on it, there's no way I'm going to give you a definitive date for the Exodus in this. So if you're expecting that, you should really lower your expectations. You've seen me do math. I'm not going to be able to, to resolve all of the conflict between the conservative Bible scholars onto when these events took place. And though we went through most of the book of Genesis, when we get to Moses, uh, when we get to Moses, it is Exodus... Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy that feature Moses. So we have a lot more material for Moses. Now, don't let your heart skip a beat at that because we're not going to cover everything that there is to cover in, in the Bible regarding Moses. But we are going to highlight the parts of Moses' life, the events of Moses' life, that we see highlighted by the author of Hebrews here between verses 23 and 29. There's a lot available. So what I'm doing today is we're going to go over some of the details that are in the text of Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to kind of give a, a, a broad overview of that. And I want to really answer two questions. First, to look at what details are here in Hebrews 11 that we are going to go, be going back into Exodus and examining. But second, in order to set Moses in this context and to answer the question, why did the author choose to highlight Moses? And why does he choose to pause at Moses and give us more details on Moses than he does for Abel, Enoch, and Noah, or Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph? Because there are two characters in Hebrews 11 that get the bulk of the time there, and it's Abraham, whom we've already looked at, and Moses. So the author, why does the author choose Moses? Why, why, why camp on him? 
When you have, for instance, Joseph, who has so many examples of faith in the life of Joseph, why just give Joseph a mention and then camp on Moses? And I think that there is a reason. The author has a reason. He's making an argument. And what I want to do today is, is put Moses into that argument so you can see how his argument regarding the, the life of Moses contributes to the flow of the text and answers some of the objections that the first century Christians would have had. The author says, if you look down at verse 32, and what more shall I say for time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets. The author knows that he has a whole list of people that he could spend time on, but he knows his time is limited. And so the fact that he stops and pauses and gives us so much detail on Abraham is significant, and so much detail on Moses is significant. So today we're going to look at why it is that he gives us so much detail in the life of Moses. The author is following a chronological order in Hebrews chapter 11. You've seen that beginning at the fall or just after the fall with Abel and his offering, his sacrifice, and then Enoch and Noah, and then he pauses at Abraham, gives us the details on Abraham, and then rushes through Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and then pauses on Moses. And you'll notice that he is, he's not hitting every character of the Old Testament, but he is hitting specific ones and specific events, and he's doing so in a chronological fashion. And from the point of Abel to Joseph, we cover, or sorry, to Moses, we cover roughly 2,400 years of history. And I say roughly because it's give or take. And by give or take, I don't mean a million years. By give or take, I mean a century or two at the most, depending on, again, on how you date things. And the author's purpose is to show that faith has been a principle, faith has been at work, faith has been key since the fall of man. Since the time that Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden, in their two sons, Cain and Abel, you see faith illustrated in the life of Abel and the sacrifice that he gave, and faith is key. Faith is key from the very beginning. And salvation, men's acceptance and approval before God and with God, has always been on the basis of faith, never works. And Moses is particularly an example of that since he is the, the great giver of the law. He's the great lawgiver. So if you expected anybody's life to illustrate that you could be saved by keeping the law, you would think that Moses would illustrate that, but the author doesn't even suggest that. Scripture nowhere suggests that. Instead, Moses is an example of faith at work. In fact, Moses' faith was at work before the law was even given. Yet another argument that salvation and being approved by God, being used by God, is, is on the basis of faith and not from works. It cannot be from works. Man cannot be saved by works. Works flow from faith. Works are the demonstration of true faith, but works contribute nothing to faith in terms of, of saving efficacy. So the threat of faith is seen in the lives of these faithful men and women from the very beginning. Those who are approved by God are approved by God on the basis of faith and faith alone. Now, let me just remind you of the outline of Hebrews chapter 11, and I'm not going to go through all that we've covered so far, but I want you to see a very, a very simple way of dividing chapter 11 into three main sections. In verses 3 through 8, after the author defines what faith is in verse 1 and 2, in verse 3 through 8, he illustrates faith in showing that faith is central to a walk with God. In verses 3 to 8, we see faith in a walk with God, in salvation and in deliverance and in making one righteous. And the three examples there, Abel, Enoch, and Noah. Abel shows us faith in worship. Enoch shows us faith in walking with God. And in Noah, phases, uh, Noah shows us faith in the work for God right? Our worship, our walk, and our work. And we saw that when we looked at those passages. In verses 9 through 22, we see faith to wait on promises. And the examples of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, all of those men, the emphasis of that passage, 9 through 22, is all on the forward-looking aspect of faith. 
that men of faith look forward to the fulfillment of promise. And there's no greater illustration of that in Scripture than Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, who all died without receiving the things that were promised, but anticipated and expecting the fulfillment of those promises nonetheless. And now in verses 23 to 29, where the example is Moses, we see faith is necessary to endure hostility, adversity, and affliction. Faith in our walk with God, faith looking forward to the promises of God, the fulfillment of them, and then faith in enduring hostility and adversity and affliction. And as I mentioned, Moses is the second major figure in Hebrews chapter 11, Abraham being the first. The author pauses here to focus on these two men, Abraham and Moses, and I think for a reason. The other men, uh, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, etc., they all get a mention in the passage, but nothing like the time that is spent on Abraham and Moses. Why is that? I think there's a couple of reasons. First, both of these men are the recipients of covenants. They were the recipients of covenants. They have, they have a lot. Abraham and Moses have a lot in common. But one of the main things that they have in common is that both of these men were recipients of covenants. Abraham was given an unconditional covenant of a land, a people, and a seed. By the way, the Abrahamic covenant is an eternal covenant. Now, Moses, the covenant that we refer to as the Mosaic covenant is a different kind of covenant. It's a temporal covenant, a covenant that Hebrews chapter 8 says is passing away. All of the forms and features of that old covenant, the dealing with the law of Moses and the covenant of works that came with Moses and the law and the giving of all of that, it was a temporary covenant that is made obsolete by the new covenant, which has replaced it in the coming of Christ. But Moses had also a covenant. It was a conditional covenant. It involved the law, the Aaronic priesthood, and the sacrifices, all of which we've looked at already in the book of Hebrews. So these two are the most significant of all Old Testament characters, Moses and Abraham. We might also argue that Adam was a pretty significant Old Testament character, since we're all in Adam, and the effects of Adam's fall affects us all today. But in terms of God's redemptive and salvation plan, in terms of the things that are connected in all of Scripture to men in the Old Old Testament, we'd say Moses and Abraham really have the preeminence. Abraham was promised the land, and Moses brought them to it. Here's a number of parallels between these two men. Abraham was told they would serve in Egypt as slaves. Moses brought them out of that slavery. Abraham was promised a nation, and Moses served as a judge of that nation and a leader of that nation. In Abraham, the nation was elect or chosen, and we see the choice of God from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph as he distinguished between individual sons and firstborn and secondborn in affirming and confirming his choice in his election through that lineage. In Abraham, the nation is elect. Through Moses and the Passover and the deliverance from Egypt, the nation was saved. And we're not necessarily talking necessarily in a, in a salvific, in the salvific as we would define salvific in terms of sin and eternal life. But there is the deliverance of the nation from slavery and bondage into freedom and into the land and into the promises of God. And that deliverance out of Egypt is, is symbolic in a way. It is also sort of sets a precedence and becomes an example that is used throughout Scripture of God's delivering power, His redeeming power. We speak of the nation of Israel being redeemed sometimes. And when we talk about that in Old Testament sense, we're not saying that everybody in Israel was saved, spiritually speaking that they all had eternal life and that they were all justified and that they were all righteous. That's not what we mean. But we do mean that the, Isra- the Israelites, the, the nation, was saved or delivered out of bondage, out of, out of Egypt, which is always, a, not always, but Egypt is often a symbol of sin in the Old Testament. That slavery and that bondage and that darkness becomes somewhat symbolic of sin as, as we read about it in the New Testament. So in Abraham, the nation is elect, but in Moses, the nation is saved. 
and not in Moses, but you know what I mean? Don't parse my words too much. But through Moses' ministry, he becomes the deliverer or the savior, the redeemer of Israel in a sense. Abraham was the father of a nation. Moses, it's deliverer. Abraham was a great patriarch. Moses, the great lawgiver. Each, with each of these men, Moses and Abraham, the, the salvific and the redemptive plan of God takes a leap forward, a jump forward. Before Abraham, you, you have men justified on the basis of faith and faith alone, as Abel, Enoch, and Noah demonstrate. But in Abraham, suddenly there's a crystallization of the promises of God and the redemptive intention of God as he promises to Abraham a land, a seed, and a people, a descendants. And this becomes the way through which God is going to bring salvation to the nations. Well, in Moses, you see the shadows of that salvation begin to take shape with the sacrifices and the ceremonies and the priesthood of the Old Testament. So with each of these men, God's plan for salvation takes a leap forward and becomes a little bit more clear. Now, why is Moses included? I think he's included for the same reason that Abraham is included, and that is to show the faith in the lives of men whom the Jews revered. Remember, the book of Hebrews is written to uh, Jewish Christians in the first century Christians who had a background in Judaism, who had come out of Old Testament Judaism and had stepped away for a time from the Old Covenant, and now some of them are thinking about returning to it. And the author wants to demonstrate that their lineage of godly men, starting from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and Moses, and Joshua, David, and the rest of them, that all of these men had the same principle of faith at work that he has been advocating throughout the entire book so that these men would be encouraged, that these readers would be encouraged to cling to Christ and not abandon Christ. And it's something of a stroke of genius that the author uses Abraham and Moses in this chapter because he is trying to argue against a couple of very common Jewish objections to the Christian faith. Here are a couple of common Jewish objections to the Christian faith. Number one, that Christianity is a Gentile religion and I'm a Jew. Many Jews think that. Christianity is a Gentile religion. That's, that's faith that's for you Gentiles. You believe in this guy named Jesus. That's a Gentile faith. But I'm an ethnic Jew. Therefore, I will please God based upon my works, based upon my interpretation of the Old Testament, based upon my lineage. That gets me into the covenant. That gets me into God's goodness, His favor, because I'm ethnically a Jew. Well, by citing Abraham, he's demonstrating that the faith that he is calling the readers to, the faith that God calls everybody to place in Him, and thus in the Messiah, is a faith that goes all the way back to Father Abraham. You want to, chase, you want to trace your faith lineage back to somebody, it goes all the way back to the father of the nation. And by taking it back to Moses, he is showing that no one is justified by the law, since Moses' faith itself predated the giving of the law. The law came after the Exodus, after passing through the Red Sea, after the Passover, after Moses considered the treasures of Egypt less than the reproaches of Christ. All of these examples in, in Hebrews 11 of Moses' faith predate the giving of the law, and therefore Moses was already a man approved by God, not on the basis of the law, the Ten Commandments, and keeping all the forms and functions of the Old Covenant, but Moses was a man approved by God and embraced by God and loved by God on the basis of grace and faith alone. Second, this common Jewish objection is that Christianity is incompatible with the law of Moses. And so here's what the author is saying. He's saying, look, you, you're, you, you are facing pressure to abandon Christ and return to the forms and features of the old covenant. You are facing the pressure from your family and from your culture to leave what you have come to embrace in Christ and to go back to Moses. And now the author, by citing Moses, is basically saying, if you go back to Moses, you're betraying Christ. 
because Moses considered the reproaches of Christ as greater and better than the treasures of Egypt. Therefore, Moses left all the convenience and the comfort and the treasures and the pleasures that Egypt offered, and he embraced instead the reproach of Christ. So if you let go of the reproach of Christ and turn away from him and go back to Moses, you're actually doing the opposite of what Moses did. Do you see what the author is arguing? He's basically saying to them, do you think Moses left Egypt because he liked being with Jews? Do you think Moses left Egypt because he wanted to wander around the desert for 40 years, listening to the 3 million people say, are we there yet? I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. When are we going to eat meat again? Can't we go back? Do you think that's why Moses left Egypt? No. Moses left Egypt because he saw in the promises of God a great reward. That great reward was in the Christ. And he was willing to leave all of that so that he could embrace Christ. And so now you, dear reader, if you turn from Christ to have the pleasures and the treasures of this world, to secure your own reputation and have a life of ease and freedom from persecution and conflict, you're actually doing the opposite that Moses did. So don't claim that you're following Moses' example, and don't claim that you belong to the tribe of Moses if you're doing the opposite of what Moses did in his leaving of Egypt. That, that is a brilliant argument that the author is making. It's just brilliant. He's pulling out all of the stops and taking away all of their excuses as to why they might abandon Jesus. And he's already made the argument that Jesus is greater than Moses. He's already made that case. Back in chapter 3, you can turn back there if you want, verses 1 to 6, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses was also in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. For by just, uh, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. He's already made the point that Christ is greater than Moses. Moses was a servant in the house. That's right. But Christ is the son of that house. We are his house. He is over us and he is over Moses. Moses was to serve us as his people and we are to serve him and the one that we serve is Christ. Therefore, Christ is greater than Moses. And if you leave Christ for Moses, you're exchanging the greater for the lesser. Moses exchanged the lesser for the greater. That's the example, Hebrews chapter 11. Now let's look at some of the details of the passage. You'll notice in verse 23 through 29 that there are five by faith statements by faith Moses, verse 23, by faith Moses, verse 24, by faith he, verse 27, by faith he, verse 28, and by faith they, verse 29. Five by faith statements. And if you're wondering how many sermons are there going to be on Moses in this series, then you can count at least five because there are five by faith statements. There are five examples of faith from the life of Moses. Now, two of them relate to him indirectly Notice in verse 23, it says, by faith Moses, and what we expect after that is some statement about something that Moses did, but Moses is the recipient of something done to him. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. So in verse 23, it's actually his parents' faith that we see demonstrated in something that they did to Moses or for Moses. The other indirect reference is in verse 29, by faith they passed through the Red Sea. That's a reference to the entire nation. Now Moses, as the leader of the nation, was obviously involved in that. If you saw the movie, you know how that turns out. 
Right? So he was part of that. So it's an indirect reference to him. Verse 24, 27, and 28, all are specific examples from Moses himself. By faith, when he had grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Verse 27, by faith, he left Egypt. And by faith, 28, he kept the Passover. So something that Moses chose to do in verse 24, something Moses did in leaving Egypt, and then in 28, by keeping the Passover. Notice that there's plenty of verbs that that describe Moses, beginning in verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, and watch the verbs, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose, rather, to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of king, and he endured to seeing him who was unseen. There was a lot of active verbs there. Refused, choosing, considering, looking, left, and endured. And so if you're wondering how many sermons are there going to be on the subject of Moses, there's at least six verbs there, seven verbs there. They're probably all worth their own sermon. Yeah, well, <laughs> one person said amen. That's, okay. <laughs> That's fair. Now, just a brief survey of the passage. Verse 23, it is Moses' faithful parents that are highlighted there. He hid them, or they hid him in the, in the rushes. Verse 24, Moses' own decision that is highlighted there, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment of the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. In verse 27, Moses leaves Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. There's some question as to which event that refers to, because you remember that Moses left Egypt twice, right? Once, 40 years before the Exodus. Then he returned to Egypt and had his confrontation with Pharaoh and the ten plagues, and then he left Egypt again. So what event, which leaving of Egypt is mentioned, meant by verse 27? He left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. He endured as seeing him who was unseen. Which, which, which departure from Egypt is that referring to? We will get to that when we get to that. Verse 28, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch him. And verse 29, they passed through the Red Sea. Now, you'll notice that all the major events that we normally associate with the life of Moses are, are right here in this passage. He, he found himself on the outs with Pharaoh and his household, though he had a claim to the palace and the life of the palace. And he went back to Egypt and left Egypt with the children of Israel. He kept the Passover and passed through the Red Sea. That's basically the outline of the Ten Commandments, the movie. Those are the high points of Moses' life. I want you to notice now also the repeated themes here. There are three themes in this passage that have been, we have been seeing repeated all the way through chapter 11 because they sort of crop up in chapter 10, and it is now as if chapter 11 is a bunch of illustrations of the principles and the teaching that he gave us in chapter 10 in the warning passage. Three themes. First, you'll notice that twice it is mentioned that somebody did something not fearing someone. In verse 23, Moses' parents hid him because they saw he was a beautiful child, and they were, look at the end of verse 23, not afraid of the king's edict. Not afraid of the king's edict. And verse 27, by faith, Moses left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. So this idea of not fearing something is mentioned twice, and you can see how it is. Once of Moses' parents and then once of Moses, it is almost as if faith and fear are mutually exclusive. Moses' parents did something, not fearing something else. So if I have fear present in my life, faith in, in, in that very instance, in that regard, cannot also be present. So the lack of fear of Moses' parents by the kings of the king's edict and Moses of the wrath of the king, that's mentioned. And by the way, you can see how that is 
You can see how that is related to persecution that the first century Christians were undergoing, right? Some of these early believers, they were, they were facing the possibility, the very real possibility, if Hebrews is written towards the end of the, uh, of the 60s in the first century, then, then they could see on the horizon an official government's persecution by Nero. That, that, was become, that was become obvious, or they were under Nero's persecution at the time that the book of Hebrews was written. So the idea of having faith and not fearing what is to come and not fearing the king's wrath or the king's edict would say something very specific to these first century readers, wouldn't it? He's really arguing with them for not apostatizing and leaving the faith. I cannot think of an example of apostasy that I have seen in our modern age where some form of fear has not been involved. Fear of loss, fear of the loss of my reputation, fear of what academia will think of us, fear of what the culture will think of us, fear of what other pastors in town would think of us, fear of what the institutions would think of us. It's the fear of man. At the heart of apostasy is the fear of man. And you take any one of these high-profile apostates that have hit the headlines in the last 10 years that we've been going through the book of Hebrews, if you take any one of those high-profile apostates and you listen to their testimony, you will see that all of them have one thing in common. They have a slobbering love affair with the spirit of the age and the approval of men. And so they abandon biblical morality because they fear what would happen in their reputations with their family or their reputations in their community or they're going to lose an acting gig, or they're going to lose credibility in the establishments or academia or in the press. It's a, it's a slobbering love affair with the spirit of the age and with the world's approval. It's a fear of man. That is what is the heart of apostasy. Well, the author wants to make the case that faith and fear, fear are mutually exclusive. Both Moses and his parents did not fear the most powerful person in, the, in their world at the time. And instead, they acted in faith. The second theme that we see repeated here is the reproach of Christ in verse 26. He considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for the reward. It was already mentioned the reproach of Christ earlier in chapter 10, and it was in connection with the, with the warning passage that described true believers in that early church. Verse 32, chapter 10, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. These believers had been reproached already. So the example of Moses, who would embrace and endure the reproach of Christ rather than enjoy the treasures of Egypt, that would be a great example for them of the very type of faith and endurance and perseverance that he wants these early Christians to, to model and to follow. Moses did not fear, and Moses embraced the reproach of Christ. Now, you may wonder, how is it that Moses, who lived 1,500 years before Christ, embraced the reproach of Christ? It's one thing for you and I to be reproached for the name of Christ, but before there was a Christ, how could Moses have embraced that reproach? We'll get to that when we get to that. By the way, it's not the last time he mentions this idea of reproach either. In Hebrews 13, 13, he, he says Jesus suffered outside the gate, and then he says this, let us go out to him bearing his reproach. Right? There is a reproach that the world heaps upon believers that we are to embrace. We're not to shun it. We're not to just bear up under it. We're not simply to try and avoid it, but if it's unavoidable, okay, that, that barb hit me. I guess I'll take that sling. I'll take that arrow. That's, that's not the point. We embrace it. All that reproach that belongs to Christ, we should stand in front of the world and say, we'd be faithful to the truth, arms wide open, I will embrace it. 
bring me that reproach. I will take that. I will bear that. And we're not going to be unfaithful in the midst of that. And we're not going to shy away from it. We're not going to fear the king's edict. We're not going to fear the laws of the king. We're not going to fear persecution that may come. We're not going to fear what may happen to it. We embrace the world's scorn because those who embrace the world's scorn get faith's reward. That's the third, the third theme that's repeated. Also in verse 26, he was looking to the reward. Those who bear faith's reproach gain faith's reward. Keep that in your mind. Those who bear faith's reproach gain faith's reward. Chapter 10, verses 34 to 36, he spoke to them of this reward. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. That's the reward. That's something that is promised to us. Verse 35, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. It is by faith that we take up the reproach of Christ. It is by faith that we embrace it. It is by faith that we even enjoy it. And when we receive the reproach of Christ, it should signal to us that something is going well and right in our life. Should it not? Those who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Look, if the world doesn't scorn you, something is wrong with you. Seriously wrong with you. Seriously wrong with your faith. Seriously wrong with your profession of faith. If you find find yourself at a place where the world heaps its praise on you, you're an apostate. That should be your signal. Something is seriously wrong if I do not have the reproach of Christ. Because the reproach of Christ belongs to all those who belong to Christ. And so we ought to embrace it. Moses did. By faith, he was looking forward to the reward. In fact, it is impossible to understand the faith of Moses and the actions of Moses if you do not understand, verse 26, that he was, did so looking for the reward. And this is what faith is, right? Hebrews eleven six. without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he what? He is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That expectation of reward is not only biblical, it is legitimate, it is, it was, is central to the argument of the book of Hebrews. How else do you explain somebody who would leave all of the treasures of Egypt, the empire of its day, and walk away from all of that heaping scorn upon that and, and align himself with this slave nation when he had all of the pleasures and treasures that being a prince in Egypt could bring him. How do you explain that if not for the fact that he did so convinced that God would reward him for that faith? Convinced that the reward, whatever it was in Christ that was coming to him for that faith, he was convinced that it had to be something greater than all the treasures of Egypt. And it had to be a glory and a joy and a delight that far exceeded anything that Egypt could offer. Being a prince in the greatest nation on the planet at the time would pale in comparison to the reward that Moses was convinced he would have. That reward is central to the issue of faith. One last thing, in all of the examples that we have here from the life of Moses his heaping scorn on Egypt and walking out of it and the judgment that came and the ten plagues and the Passover and parting through the Red Sea and the Egyptians being drowned in it. There's two things that God is doing through all of Moses' story. These two things God is always doing, by the way. It's not the only things that God does, but these two things God is always accomplishing in this world through all of the other things that God does. In the working out of His providence, God is doing these two things. First, He is judging sin and sinners and he is delivering sinners from sin. God is always judging and saving. 
Those two things. He is never doing something that does not accomplish either his judgment against sin or his saving of sinners out from under sin. Every natural disaster that we call natural disaster or an act of God, everything he allows in this world is set to accomplish one of those two things. Everything that his providence works out is set to accomplish either the judgment of his wrath upon sin and sinners or the salvation of sinners from sin for the glory of His name and by His grace. God is always doing those two things, judging sin and delivering people from sin, judging and saving. Every act of God can be boiled down to one of those two things. God is set against sin because He acts in judgment. He acts in judgment because He's righteous, He's holy. And so God is always set against sin, pouring out His wrath on sin. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness, and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth in that unrighteousness. What God is doing in our nation is a judging of sin. We, we pray and ought to pray that in the midst of that judgment that God remembers mercy and saves people through that because He's both accomplishing judgment as well as salvation in everything that He does. So He is angry with the wicked all day long. His wrath burns against sin. His wrath burns against evildoers. And every evil deed that is committed by an unbelieving sinner, every last one of those evil deeds is storing up for them wrath for the day of judgment. It's just adding an extra measure of wrath. Every sin, every impenitent action is adding up a measure of wrath into that cup of God's wrath, which will be poured out of them on them on the last day. And they will drink and they will suffer in full all of the wrath that they have stored up for themselves. And God is not just acting in judgment. He is saving His people, delivering people as He did through Moses. In fact, we see that God acts and acts to judge sin and deliver sinners sometimes at the same time through the same thing. This is what the Exodus was, was it not? It was God delivering His chosen people, Israel, by judging his people, the, the people who were not his, Egypt. So God poured out his wrath upon Egypt, raised up Pharaoh for this very purpose, to punish him and to demonstrate his justice on Pharaoh, while in the midst of that, he delivers the nation of Israel out of the bondage in Egypt. In that one thing, in that one event, the Exodus, God both judged sinners and he delivered sinners from judgment. God always works to deliver his people from judgment, through sometimes the judgment. And here's where God is most glorified. When he allows his people to go through judgment, now you post-trib people here, you're going to like this. I'm not post-trib. This is not post-trib. But you're going to like what I'm about to say. God is glorified when he delivers judgment upon people, but he takes his people and he shields them and carries them all the way through that judgment and delivers them on the other side of it into grace and glory. God is glorified of that. That is what he did in the nation of Israel. Israel was right there in Egypt, God poured out His wrath on Egypt, and through that, He preserved His people, His nation, in the midst of that, and then used that judgment to save them and to deliver them out of their bondage in Egypt. And the Passover is an example of that. God preserved His people because they were under the blood of the Passover lamb and of the sacrifice, so that when God poured out His wrath upon the nation of Egypt, He delivered His people through that because they were atoned for, they were covered by the blood of a sacrifice. And by the way, this act of judging and delivering people from sin, that's seen in Christ too, isn't it? In that work on the cross, God did two things. He judged the sin of His people who would believe on Him for eternal life. And through that act of judging one person, He has delivered all those who are in Jesus Christ. 
Christ's sacrifice on the cross bore the sin of his people. And in that one act of judgment, he forever brought salvation, deliverance, sanctification, and eternal glory to any and all who place their faith in Jesus Christ. In that sacrifice on the cross, all of the wrath of God that you and I deserve was poured out on the head of a substitute who bore that wrath and that penalty in full. So that concerning the one who has placed their faith in Christ, there remains no condemnation to that one because he is in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus Christ has borne fully the full penalty of the Father's wrath for his sin. So that if you are in Christ because you have repented and placed your faith in him, there is no more penalty for you to bear. There is no more sin for you to be atoned for on your behalf. There is no more penalty to be poured out on you at all. You will never see the frown of God, ever. Because he treats you as he does his son, and in his son he has seen all of his wrath that he has reserved for you. Every last bit of it has been poured out on his son. The, the cup has been emptied, and there is no more wrath to bear for you. So the cup is gone. It's empty. It's cleaned out. The cup has been poured out. It's been rubbed out. It's been washed out and rinsed out. And now all that is for us as God's people is a cup of glory and a cup of grace and a cup of blessing. So that in Christ, all of our sins are taken out of the way. Every last one of them. Past, present, and future, they are all atoned for. So that when you and I stand before God, we can stand before God not just forgiven and not just atoned for, paid for, but we can stand before God in the basis of Christ's righteousness because everything, good thing that He ever did has also been credited to our account. So all of our wrath, born in full, all of His righteousness credited to our account, that is the glorious news of the gospel. Amen. Salvation from judgment, salvation through judgment, salvation by judgment, God is always doing these two things, saving and judging. And in Christ, who is our Passover lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His blood is over us, over our doorposts. It is over our head. And because that blood has been shed and it covers us, there is no more wrath for us to bear. You and I are protected from the wrath of God. You and I are preserved and kept safe from all of Him pouring out His wrath on us because of what Christ has done. Because He has judged our sin in Him. He gives us eternal life and His righteousness. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.